0: Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr.
1: Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: For something new today, we are going to Dr. Paul Fruz, a pediatric endocrinologist, that's a hormone doctor, and he'll be taking us on a trip through the world of endocrine disruptors. These are chemicals that are in our environment and might be unwittingly feminizing girls to have puberty sooner and even feminizing men, unwantedly.
1: But we're (laughs) going to start, Tom, with some news you can use.
0: Yes, this idea came because in one of my uh, medical news feeds, there was this article that came up called Association of Phthalates, Parabens, and Phenols Found in Personal Care Products with Pubertal Timing in Girls and Boys. In other words, these chemicals that are all around us might have been affecting when puberty starts in girls and boys. And, you know, as parents, don't we just want to see puberty happen as early as possible, Chris?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what every parent is thinking right now.
0: Right. It's like wanting your kid to walk before any other kids and... Once you realize how dumb an idea that was, you repent. Well, anyway, these chemicals, phthalates, parabens, and phenols, are found in perfumes, soaps, preservatives and cosmetics, deodorant, shaving cream, even toothpaste. And it's so amazing because one of these phenols is called triclosan. And triclosan, until a few years ago, was found in antibacterial soaps until the FDA said, no, not safe, not a good idea. So we can't put it on our hands, but... We can put it in our mouths. Yes, the government is quite consistent there. So puberty, what did these chemicals do? Well, they took these women before they were pregnant, while they were pregnant, and then when the children were age 9, and they checked the urines of the women and then the children. And then they checked these children every several months to see if the signs of puberty were coming on. And what they discovered is that while puberty did not come on earlier in boys, the higher the levels of these chemicals in the urine of the mothers and in the urine of the children, that puberty occurred earlier and earlier.
1: And what's the significance other than we don't want our children to grow up so fast, but what's the medical significance of puberty starting early?
0: That's what we're going to ask our expert Uh. about in the interview. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk to him about it. I, I just can't imagine that it's a good thing. But what they noticed is that every time you doubled the amount of these chemicals in the urine, puberty came on one month earlier. On average for these and it was a little over 300 children and the uh, mothers were predominantly Latina mothers who were living below the federal poverty threshold now the authors of the article do point out something correlation that means high levels with earlier puberty could also mean that if they had earlier puberty they were using some of these products earlier these personal care products that had these chemicals in them.
1: Sort of which came first. It'll also be interesting to ask our guests because my understanding is malnutrition and overwhelming stress and some of the things of impoverished adolescence can also affect the timing of puberty. So it'll be interesting to sort of sort through what's a correlation and what's a causation.
0: From everything I've read, malnutrition would delay the onset of puberty. So you expect it to go the other direction.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to ask.
0: Yes. Well, and then you found an interesting article on endocrine disruptors.
1: Yeah, this show is going to be the show of surprises to make everyone afraid of (laughs) everything that's around them. But in Endo 2018, uh, now Endo is a publication, a news publication that goes from the Society of Endocrinology, a 28 presentation that linked essential oils to gynecomastia in prepubital boys. Now, gynecomastia is the development of breast tissue in males.
0: Which doesn't belong there.
1: Right. Now, there, there is breast tissue in men, but it is not supposed to develop and enlarge. So gynecomastia and before puberty or prepubertal boys, and it caused a bit of an uproar, you know, when this was published. And what is an essential oil, Chris? Well, I think that's probably part of the uproar. I mean, uh, it's a play on words. It's there's there no oils, to my knowledge, that are essential, but these are very popular. Uh, they have a lot of fans in the world, uh, especially in sort of the and the nature-minded, more organic-minded people, and some of them can be really wonderful at eliminating some pain and suffering that we go through. Uh, So this is particularly disturbing to hear this news. But the study authors looked at certain populations that should be mindful of this essential oil use, and specific ones uh, in particular of uh, lavender oil, which is very, very popular, and tea tree oil, which is also really popular. Those have been uh, you know, have become really popular for alternative medical treatments, hygiene, cleansing products, aromatherapy. I know in my specialty in OBGYN, essential oils are very popular. We have them uh, running in a diffuser in my office all the time. My assistants swear that if they put the right recipe of essential oils in the diffuser next (laughs) to me, that I'm calm and I think better and I'm generally easier to be around. For those of you who don't
0: know Chris, Chris is almost always (laughs) calm. (laughs) So they say, uh,
1: you know, the, the authors point out our society has deemed essential oils to be safe, but then the researchers are asking a question about that. And the surprising outcome was, That uh, both these oils, the lavender as well as the tea tree oil, could have very potent estrogenic and/or anti-androgenic or anti-testosterone-like effects, and that would lead to the feminization of boys and the development of breast tissue,
0: which most pre puberter boys don't want. No,
1: they don't want. Now the good news is, once they stopped being exposed to these oils, the finding reversed itself. Do we know
0: how they were exposed to these?
1: No, I didn't get that from reading through the article. But the essential oils are used now increasingly in so many different ways, as as salves, as lotions, as skin treatments. In your area of specialty, so. It, I could imagine any number of ways that young boys could be exposed to these.
0: Well, in fact, uh, tea tree oil was used in World War II in the Pacific Rim because it has both antifungal activity and antibacterial activity and probably even some anti-inflammatory activity. And there is a small risk of allergic contact dermatitis to it, but far less to the more common causes like poison ivy or even nickel or Neosporin or Bacitracin.
1: And this idea uh, that we'll talk a lot more as we go with our guest is that some of these compounds are so similar to the hormones like estrogen or like testosterone that they can actually disrupt what normally takes place or stimulate what would take place if that hormone was present. So this study caused a great deal of uh, sort of uh, concern and angst Particularly in the industry of essential oils, that were quick to point out some flaws in the study. And as you and I know, and a lot of our listeners, if they pay attention to us, you have to read a study very carefully. And there can be flaws in the study design that make a certain outcome more likely, not because of the real problem, but because of the way the study was designed. Absolutely, so it is worth uh, you know keeping that in mind whenever you're reading this kind of thing. And also some of the Some of the rebuttals came from the Research Institute of Fragrance Materials. I didn't even know there was such an (laughs) institute. But it's also possible that that institute might have a bias in favor of uh, covering up any unflattering evidence about fragrances. So
0: we move on to actually a trivia question that deals with this subject and is going to lead to an interesting discussion, I think, in the end of the show. And that is, there was an endocrine-disrupting chemical that has saved over 500 million lives. But it was banned in the United States in 1972 because it was falsely believed to cause leukemia, liver disease, birth defects, premature births, and a whole range of chronic illnesses. What was this endocrine-disrupting chemical, which actually has minor effects in humans, per a very recent Centers for Disease and Control report, and what disease does it help to eradicate in at least 11 countries and thus save the lives of half a billion people? We'll be back for more on Endocrine Disruptors with Dr. Paul Cruz after the break. Welcome now to today's guest interview with Dr. Paul Cruz. He's going to talk to us about endocrine disruptors, which we introduced in the first segment, Paul is Associate Professor of Pediatric Cell Biology and Physiology in the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor.
2: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, and Paul gave an awesome interview on gender dysphoria almost a year ago to the day. So maybe we're going to have to do this every year at this time. So, Paul, endocrine disruptors, big topic, so many chemicals Some people are afraid of anything that's chemical until they realize that everything is made of chemicals. But um, let's start with a concrete situation to try to put this in perspective. In the journal Pediatrics, they published an article in 2009 that said that between the years 1991 and 2006, a 15-year period, the onset of puberty for American girls was occurring one year earlier. What are the causes of this, and... Could one of the causes be these endocrine disruptor chemicals?
2: Yes, certainly, you know the way you phrase the question, there really are a lot of potential reasons for this it 's a real entity we we 've observed the onset of puberty earlier in, in particular in girls and we 've been uh, looking at this phenomenon for many years now. One of the, the issues relates to how we assess puberty and, and look at it clinically and, and really, the original data that came out about a century ago in staging normal timing of puberty uh, was done in, in a population of children, that's very different than what we have right now. So it was actually done in an institutional setting in the UK. And much of the thinking is is that this earlier puberty is related to changes in nutrition. Yet it doesn't look like that's going to explain all of it. And with the increased recognition and study of these endocrine disruptors, uh, environmental factors may uh, be contributing to what we're seeing.
0: And is earlier puberty one of the main Bad potential side effects of endocrine disruptors?
2: It certainly is the area that has been most investigated, and I think it's one of the areas that I think is easiest to be able to draw a connection between what we're seeing as far as environmental exposure and what's going on. There's certainly lots of other areas. Uh, as, a, as a class, these compounds can, can really affect uh, a number of different endocrine hormone systems. But yes, I think we've been focused on, on this particular question for, for the greatest period of time.
0: What would be potential harms to children going through puberty sooner?
2: There are several, and and the two most important ones, one relates to growth, so children that go through puberty too early will have acceleration in the advancement of their uh, skeleton and although they will be taller during childhood they'll stop growing uh, sooner and uh, they actually have short stature the other problem with early puberty is that uh, very frequently these children in developing early they're put into social situations uh, advances by uh, older age uh, peers where they're not really ready you know for that because it's not just the physical changes with puberty there's also all of the developmental processes that go along with adolescence. And so when you put a child in that setting, it, it makes it very difficult for them at that particular time.
0: And most of these changes in puberty are in girls. Is that correct?
2: That is, is true. I think the earlier onset of puberty is, is really what we're seeing uh, in girls. There really hasn't been as much of a change in boys The timing seems to be about the same. The only difference in in the boys, what we're seeing, and potentially linking it to these endocrine disruptors, uh, would be uh, breast development where they normally wouldn't get that at all, uh, what's called gynecomastia. And that's something that we see uh, in really a large number of boys normally during the time of puberty, usually uh, midway through that process, but it's usually self-limited it goes away. What we're starting to see is some boys that are having early gynecomastia before they really have even started into puberty or boys that have a greater development of breast tissue or breast tissue that, that persists um, even if they after they've completed puberty.
0: So tell us how, how you think of the definition of an endocrine disruptor as an expert in hormones.
2: You know, this term is actually being used uh, to account for things that occur either naturally or artificially in the environment, that either block or stimulate uh, the endocrine system. So the way the endocrine system normally works is that there are uh, hormones that bind to receptors on cells. And what is going on with endocrine disruptors, these are compounds that are binding to the same proteins and uh, either stimulating or blocking uh, those hormone systems.
0: Now, I remember reading an article almost 20 years ago, and I think it was when I lived in Colorado, and they were talking about certain streams having their fish affected by certain chemicals that were turning like 80% of the fish female, 15% across between male and female, and maybe 5% is male. Is this real? And are endocrine disruptors the cause?
2: Well, the, the first part of that question, you know, is it something that we're observing? That is true. Uh, we are seeing this, and it's been reported uh, very clearly. Uh, whether or not it is, it is being caused by endocrine disruptors is is something that really is, is not been definitively determined. And it's important to understand that in understanding the differences between humans and fish and how they, they reproduce sexually. And, and it's already known that there are several species of fish that are able to Switch between uh, producing eggs and, and producing sperm, and, and there are some species of fish that actually are able to do both, and that's been long known. But this is being seen in fish that normally wouldn't do that. So it may be that the programming that's avail- that is present in fish uh, makes them more susceptible wow. to these endocrine disruptors and in, sure. in, in causing this shift to occur. So it's kind of the equivalent of you know the canary in a coal mine. So that they may be uh, doing this when we wouldn't necessarily be able to see that in In humans. And that's really one of the ways that we think about this. It it is something that is real and and has raised concern. And where it's even more uh, concerning is when when you see this happening in pockets of of the world uh, where it's in close proximity to places where there might be more chemicals being produced. And so it at least raises the question. I don't think it uh, is enough evidence to say with any certainty that that is indeed the actual cause.
0: Well, and then I read this other book that was talking about uh, potential endocrine disruptors on Potomac River actually leading to lower sperm counts in men in the Washington, D.C. area. Is there any truth to that, or do you think this was just a hyperbole?
2: Well, I, you know, I think that it's something uh, to consider, and it, it's uh, potentially one explanation. I think we've known for, for several years um, that it is a true phenomenon that sperm counts are decreasing uh, in, in many areas. Uh, and again, linking this to endocrine disruptors uh, has not been definitively shown, but the, the mechanism by which they may work uh, certainly would fit uh, with that as, as a hypothesis or a guess. For example, that many of these endocrine disruptors are activating uh, estrogen Receptors or mimicking the effects of estrogen, and, and we know that that if that uh, was activated, that that would contribute to reduction in sperm. So, certainly, definitely raises questions um, in all of this area to, to say with any confidence that it is indeed the reason. Um, you know, is we, we don't have the evidence to say that, but it's certainly of concern.
0: So, when you talk about estrogen receptors, as of course is female hormone, do men and boys have estrogen receptors?
2: Y- um y- yes they do and in fact it's important to know that uh men and women, or boys and girls, have, uh, make normally both estrogen and testosterone, or the male and female uh, hormones that we usually associate with that. But it's usually uh, the amount of hormone that is present. So uh, boys will have more testosterone, girls will have more estrogen. And, and what's interesting is that the amount of, of disruption of the normal signaling, it doesn't have to be profound. It can be just small uh, differences in, in the signaling mechanisms that can lead uh, to observable changes.
0: So what would a, the purpose of an estrogen receptor be in a male?
2: Um, well, it's very important for bone development. In fact, that's one of the reasons why people that have what we call hypogonadism um, have lower bone density. So it's really important in maturing the bones and, and leading to bone strength. And there's other other effects as well. Um, so, um, and again, none of these uh, you know hormone processes. Um, are are restricted to just the the sexual organs and the sexual tissues. They actually have effects throughout the body, and bone density is just one example of that.
0: And what are some other areas besides the sexual organs that can be affected by these endocrine disruptors?
2: Uh, well so certainly there are uh, concerns uh, about uh, metabolism and uh, the ability to, to cause changes in, in weight um, there are uh, certainly in learning processes memory and then, and then there's um, uh, where the receptors are, are expressed in, in tissues that may pre- uh, predispose to cancer uh, so I think that when you when you're getting abnormal signaling in tissues that normally wouldn't see uh, that signaling it, it you know things can go awry so um, you know the the endocrine system is very diverse. It affects uh, a variety of tissues. And we're talking a lot now about estrogen receptors and, and androgen receptors. But, you know, the other receptors that can be affected by these uh, environmental uh, compounds include the thyroid uh, hormone and, um, and other signaling processes in the, in the brain and in other tissues.
0: And is it just as bad if it happens in adults as in children?
2: Well, it, it appears that the most sensitive time is actually during development. So there's a lot of concern uh, in a developing baby uh, in early in life that they're more susceptible uh, to these uh, compounds and chemicals. Um, there are Certainly, different phases of life where the signaling processes, and really throughout life, uh, it's a very coordinated uh, process where where the signals are turned on and off. But I think that um, I it, very clear that that the young children and developing babies um, are at greatest risk of being affected by this.
0: Do you think that in current media, whether you know television, radio, internet, that there is too much, too little, or just right? Amount of information on endocrine disruptors.
2: Well, it depends on the on the group that that you're looking at. I think from from the public standpoint, uh, there there are probably people in both camps. There are people that um, really have never even even maybe some of the listeners that have never even heard of endocrine disruptors. Um, but there are also people you know that uh, devote a lot of attention to that. And so much of what happens in the on the internet uh, in you know social media tends to, to sensationalize uh, the information and, and present the worst case scenario or uh, overstate what the scientific evidence is. If you look to uh, reliable uh, websites, and including those uh, put out by the National Institute of Health, um, there's some pretty good information that's there on target. Um, you know I think among scientists, there's an appropriate amount of caution, uh, but no, not overreaction. Um, but I think that we do see uh, uh, reactions to this um, that are probably overstated and overplayed.
0: That's good to know. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the main implicated chemicals. And I, th- the thing that I've heard most often related to this are uh, <laughs> what you see in the old Dustin Hoffman film, uh, The Graduate. Got one word for you, plastics. And so apparently both hard and soft plastics can be a problem. I- is that true?
2: That is true. I mean, there, there's a couple of chemicals. Uh, for example, uh, uh, plastics, uh, a compound called BPA that actually uh, is used to harden uh, plastics and is very uh, important, and we use that in in some of the water bottles that we use for drinking, um, are have been implicated. And then there are, are other compounds that are used as as softeners, um, and both uh, those types of compounds um, have have been implicated. And in and, and the reason why they're of concern is is because the, these really are are really you know. uh, Throughout the our our, um, environment, so they're they're very widely used Um, They're uh, used in in uh, these chemicals and lining of of containers and stabilizing uh, 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 Containers and and so because they're so um, widely available and widely used um, even small amounts of these uh, chemicals uh, may have uh, significant effects so
0: BPA, bisphenol A, found, like you said, in the hard plastics, also in uh, epoxy resin that is used to line uh, even food cans and soft drink cans. My gosh, it's everywhere. How does BPA uh, affect the human body?
2: Well, so BPA, again, as an endocrine disruptor um, in the area that we have been talking about earlier as far as, uh, as you know, signaling some of these, these processes, uh, like as, as far as activating... Uh, estrogen receptors um, has been. Most of the studies that have been done are have been done in laboratory animals, in, in in rodents in particular, and many of the studies that have come out are are studying this with very high concentrations of these chemicals. Um, and uh, you know what's difficult in trying to link this to endocrine disruptors. Uh, in humans is is really looking at you know what is the threshold you know how much is is actually uh, taking uh, absorbed and taken up in humans and what is the threshold that actually has effects and and it's been very difficult um, you know the 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 evidence out there in the FDA you know or in the the NIH has has looked at this uh, and they have concluded at least at this point in time that the levels are, are below threshold But there there are many caveats to that. So um, you know, first off, you know, we can't take the animal data and directly translate it to humans. We need right. to, to study uh, wh- where the threshold is. But it, you know, it's, it's the amount that's there and, and the duration that it's there as well. And then all of, also when we look at uh, BPA in particular, um, it's, ne- it's never in isolation. So you've, you really have, I would say, cocktails or, or multiple different compounds. So in laboratory settings, it's much easier to see these effects. And they've actually sh- uh, been able to demonstrate this, that you can get Uh, Effects in in signaling through these receptors or changes in the signaling of these um, hormone receptors uh, when you expose them uh, to BPA and other uh, endocrine disruptors. Um, But it it makes it very difficult when when you try to then translate that into humans.
0: This brings us to the end of the first half of the interview. This has been outstanding. Dr. Paul Cruz, endocrinologist, will be back after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back for the second half of the interview with endocrinologist Dr. Paul Fruz on endocrine disruptor chemicals. We just talked about a couple chemicals in plastics. Now, there's one that used to be, until recently, in uh, antibacterial soaps, but it's still found in, among other things, toothpaste. So we can't put it on our hands. We can put it in our mouth. It's called triclosan. What should we know about that?
2: Yes. Well uh, you know again this is a, a compound that's been uh identified as as an endocrine disruptor or potential endocrine uh disruptor. Um you know there there are different elements of, of that particular compound, and, and again, this relates to all of the, the things that we see in, in various products, um, you know, trying to assess what is the benefit of having that chemical present and what, are the, what is the risk. So the reason uh, that it was used, uh, triclosan was used uh, in antibacterial uh, agents was really to, to prevent um, it as an antimicrobial agent. And, and really the benefit of having that versus just washing with regular soap has not been demonstrated. So the fact that it's present in there, and there are questions about it being present as an endocrine disruptor without any benefit, um, you know, in the equation of of trying to decide whether we should uh, be exposed to that or not, um, uh, and and I think from some uh, pressure that was put on on the FDA uh, for taking that out of that particular product, so um, and what they concluded was that there was no evidence to say that it was. Uh, uh, that it was safe. And that isn't the same thing as saying that it's been proven that it's harmful, Great but it point. just says that there's not uh, evidence, um, you know, to be able to support that. So I think that's a, a general. And then there are other uh, problems with that um, as far as development of antibiotic, antibiotic resistance and, and effects yes. and other things uh, as well.
0: And one more group of chemicals before we get on to some more general questions, and that are the parabens. This is important to me in dermatology because they're found in a number of sunscreen agents as well as preservatives and perfumes and cosmetics. So what do we know about parabens' potential impact on the endocrine system?
2: Yeah, so so I think there is, uh, like the other compounds that we've discussed, uh, you know, potential effects on reproductive function. There's also associations uh, with cancer risk and and even on thyroid function for for that matter. Um, similar to the other. Uh, you know, compounds the studies that have been done primarily in in animals and in rodents and and relatively high doses as well um... and uh, that i think that um, you know, the question is uh, in all of these uh, adding them as preservatives or, or um... you know for the purposes that, of why they're being used are there alternatives uh, you know if if there uh, is a clear benefit not a clear alternative and not very good evidence that that there's um, you know danger then it, we may be t- more tolerant of that but i think in this particular area um, many of those questions are still there. You know, do we have uh, uh, suitable alternatives? Um, you know, what is the, the evidence that it's actually going to um, that it's actually caused by uh, these compounds uh, rather than just being associated with them? Because there are many other things in the products um, that we're looking at uh, where the people are seeing the association and trying to pin down exactly what it is uh, you know that's causing this. But there, there's mounting evidence uh, for the parabens family, um, and I think that there's really an interest in continuing to study these compounds.
0: So, And you just emphasize something that's important here. Just because there is an association, it doesn't mean there's a cause. There was a, a phrase that we used to use in medical school, uh, true, true, and unrelated. Just because two things are true and seem to possibly have an effect. It doesn't mean they necessarily do. How do you explain that to patients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that there's many things that happen uh, at the same time, but you can't make the conclusion that that, that association is the reason why. And uh, for example, you know, uh, people that are... Um, uh, in, in a particular environment and consuming a particular product may also be exposed to another uh, harmful agent, smoking, you know, for example, uh, and that may be the, the true cause. And, and so when we're looking at things uh, like associations with obesity, um, you know, co- uh, blaming it on particular types of foods um, when, when we're not looking at uh, the changes in e- exercise level, for example. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I think we just have to be very cautious. And we do this in, in the scientific world, but sometimes it gets lost in the messaging. Um, that just because um, they occur together doesn't mean that that is responsible, you know, uh, for the the effect that we observe.
0: You also mentioned to me offline that some foods can be endocrine disruptors. How does that work?
2: Well, certainly um, there are, are things within foods um, that. Uh, that, can, that can act as endocrine disruptors, certainly things that are being used as, as preservatives. Um, and, it, it, you know, when we're talking about if the definition of an endocrine disruptor is something that, that changes the normal uh, functioning of the endocrine system, um, you know, for example, uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, these endocrine disruptors leading to, to obesity um, and when we look at at food uh, products, for example, just high fructose corn syrup, you know there's a oh lot gosh. of data that's out yes. there right now um, trying to understand how that changes uh, you know the body's metabolism and you know satiety signals and um, and whether that's directly related uh, you know to to that particular sugar uh, or it's related to other things that are present in for example, um, you know sodas and things of that nature. So we uh, we, we have to um, you know look more broadly, and this is also is what makes it very difficult in doing research in this area. It's very easy in a laboratory animal where you can control the conditions, but you it's very difficult to do that uh, in um, in human studies, and especially when you're looking at effects um, that really don't show up for long periods of time, uh, where the exposures are, are quite varied.
0: So one article I found discussed chemicals they even called obesogens or chemicals that could cause obesity, and they even included uh, BPA uh, and diethylstilbestrol, which has a, has a bad rap. Is there any evidence that these can perpetuate obesity? Or like you said, do we just need longer-term studies to even know that?
2: Yeah, I, I think this this leads to another uh, important point um, that even though there are questions uh, about whether they uh, really are acting in that way, uh, leading to excessive weight gain as obesogens, um, and and there is evidence, you know, when you look in in very controlled studies in in cultured cells, or you look at animal models where you where you can see uh, things that that might uh, relate to to increased weight. We have to put all of this in in the context of the other things that are well-established that are leading to this And so one of the the points is that even if you were to prove that these compounds are are contributing uh, to excess weight gain uh, Comparing that side-by-side to changes lifestyle changes as far as what people are eating in their in their diet in general changes in exercise patterns um much of the data out here uh, would suggest that um, that if it is true, it's, it's a very small component and these other factors really dwarf any effect that we might see from that. It's not to dismiss it. It just means to put it in, in proper context.
0: A lot of people are concerned about hormones used in raising uh, the animals from which we get meat to eat. So are the hormones that could end up in meat, are those potential endocrine disruptors?
2: Um by the way we define that uh... yes i would say and it's not in, in up to this point we've been talking a lot about things that stimulate estrogen receptors and, and change puberty, and we talked a little bit about weight. Um, the hormones that, that have been, been implicated, or the compounds, I should say, that are, are implicated in meats include growth hormone, pesticides, and antibiotics. And, um, you know, it, it's not clear uh, whether uh, or to what ex- extent that exposure uh, leads to adverse uh, health events. I, there's been some isolated cases uh, where there's been outbreaks of, of uh, individuals and in the community that are exposed to um, you know a particular uh, source uh, where it 's uh, suggestive that there might be something truly going on there um, but uh, the evidence itself is is uh, not strong enough that we can make definitive uh, c- conclusions so I think that the best advice is uh, to remain vigilant. Um, but, um, you know, again, to, to make major changes in eating habits based on the evidence that we have uh, right now is there's probably not a, a good rationale for doing that.
0: Now, you've mentioned to me that your patients actually might have some issues with certain essential oils. Tell us about that.
2: Well, this is this is um, when we when we're thinking about uh, endocrine disruptors, and there are many things that are present in the environment that are really difficult for an individual person, you know, to control. They're just everywhere, um, but there are products that people are buying and, and exposing themselves to, and and uh, essential oils and, and lavender-containing products are are one uh, group of of. Uh, a products that I see very frequently in children that are presenting with early puberty uh, or boys that are, are presenting with uh, premature breast uh, development or gynecomastia. And, uh, you know, that's a modifiable, um, you know, exposure. So people can switch to products that um, or, or not be exposed to those products. And, and uh, to the extent that it's been shown that in uh, there's a mechanism by which those products can stimulate estrogen receptors. Um, they're not Essential um, as far as uh, needing to have that exposure, and so by being able to remove that, that's one potential modifiable factor. And the number of times that I've had patients come into my clinic uh, with that and, and asking the question, um, you know, again, it's it's not a controlled study, and and I don't want to over overplay it, but um, but we do see that very frequently, and it's something that people can can change. How are
0: most of these uh, patients exposed to lavender and tea tree oil that you see?
2: Well, very frequently, um, there are lots of uh, lotions and, and bath, uh, you know, soaps that, that have this. And usually you can identify them with a purple cap that they have on, on the bottles themselves. And and, um, and many times uh, when you think about the overall exposure, especially when we're looking at young children, uh, when you're looking at a topical compound, um, you know, the, the surface area uh, that is being affected and, and where it's being applied to can be significant. Um, you know, again, um, you know, they're are still questions about when you see a patient that has early puberty, um, we don't ever, you know, jump to the conclusion that that was the cause. We need to do investigations about other things that may be going on. And we try to look broadly. One of the things that we've actually done in the clinic is uh, looking for these, uh, what we call phytoestrogens, mm-hmm. again, things that may be present in, in the environment as a whole. And there are assays that you can do um, to actually, you know, take a person's blood and, and, and uh, expose it to a, an experimental system where you can and see whether there's actually activation of, of the estrogen signaling pathways, um, and those tests can be ordered. Um, it's it's very infrequent that we actually find a positive result when we do that, even though we're looking for that. And and again, I do these in when I see a, a very extreme case of exposure, um, and it's a part of it is timing as well. You know when we're looking at uh, when this sp- exposure was and when we're actually looking at it. Um, But um, it's an interesting phenomenon, and, and, you know, we we try to identify exposures. The other thing, you know, is uh, where we see it is where people are – um, you know, they have the concept of, a little is good, a lot is better. And, yes. and so, um, you know, you go to the health food store and, and you know, you're, you get a whole, you know, kilogram of, of DHEA. And, um, and and we really do have patients that, that really overindulge in, in some of these health food products. And, um, you know, there, you know, there's, and we and when we see an effect, when they started doing that, then they had the effect. And even though it's not, not a scientific study, you know, there's, there's more evidence that there may be an associate, more than just an association there. And, um, you know one of the ways that we distinguish association and cause is that you know you look at, at the exposure and then you remove the exposure yes. and then you see that it goes away and again, there's very uh, from a scientific standpoint there's there's criteria that are used you know to make this uh, transition from something that really is is more than just an association. so you know uh, you know people uh, that are uh, wanting to avoid uh, the adverse effects of these uh, particular endocrine disruptors you know can look to things that are modifiable and, and some of them we've already listed.
0: Are there some drugs that people take that are actually acting as endocrine disruptors?
2: Oh, most certainly. And I think that many times um, uh, patients uh, do not recognize uh, the effects of medicine. So any medicine that, that a physician prescribes, you know, that we usually have a discussion about risks and benefits. And um, there are many classes of medications that, that can lead to the same effects that we see for endocrine disruptors. Um, and um, uh, one of the one the, the classes I think we should mention are some of the hormone products that are given. Uh, oral contraceptives, for, for example, sure. um, you know, can have very adverse effects um, in in many areas of the body. You know, affecting clotting, cancer risk, and um, you know, people need to be aware um, of of those effects. And these are things that are. Are being prescribed. Um, there are, are medications, you know, some diuretics and, and things that that can lead to, gy- and and some some of the uh, psychotic medications that can lead to gynecomastia, changing in the endocrine hormones. It doesn't mean that that they they don't have benefit, but you have to recognize that that what we, there are many uh, things that we call off-target effects. There are effects that that have ad- or adverse effects that we're not intending. Um, some of them are are relatively mild and and aren't harmful, but some some of them are very harmful, and I think that when you have compounds that that um, uh, that increase the risk of cancer or, or stroke uh, or high blood pressure, like contraceptives, um, you, you need to take that take that seriously.
0: So the the number one pr- problematic endocrine disruptors are really medications we're taking. It's not these other chemicals uh, in the environment.
2: Well I think that that's that's a direct um you know something that we're ingesting yes. and we're doing it intentionally. You know again when you look at some of the environmental factors we don't have a lot of control uh, over what we're exposed to or if we're going to modify um you know, our behavior to try to avoid them, it, it's nearly impossible because you substitute one food for another. Um, you know, you can't uh, get yourself out of the environment. We're seeing a lot of these these uh, disrupt, disrupt, endocrine disruptor chemicals um, that are, are in the environment. They're circulating around. They don't go away very quickly. Um, so uh, again, modifiable, you know, things that we can do. Yes. So uh, in our last aware.
0: minute that we have left, What practical steps should people take? And my key question for you is do you drink out of plastic water bottles? (laughs)
2: Um I would say yes I do. And and the reason I do is is because of the benefit um that I get um when I'm out on the hiking trail um with a, a plastic bottle it um being dehydrated is a bigger problem than than something that may or may not happen related to that. I think that, you know it, that it is a good practice to to be aware of what's in the products that you know especially foods that we consume and look at labels. Um if if you're you you want to be aware of what what's in there and, and question whether it needs to be there. Um, so it's, I think it's all a matter of, of the benefits that we get from the products that are there. Uh, preservatives, for example, um, you know if there if there's an alternative that's available that keeps you know uh, the food fresh, um, that would certainly be desirable. So I think well, it, it just a uh, uh, you know the the message of um, uh, being. Um, Aware uh, and and vigilant, uh, but not overreacting uh, with the evidence that's there, uh, and making changes that really aren't aren't justified.
0: Dr. Paul Cruz, this has been just a whirlwind tour of endocrine disruptors. Thank you for your measured uh, responses and good
2: information. God bless you. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and it's time to address our medical trivia question. Again, it was, what endocrine disrupting chemical, or EDC, as we've learned on the show, (laughs) saved over 500 million lives, but it was later in 1972 banned in the United States because it was falsely believed to cause liver disease and leukemia and a whole bunch of other things? Take it away, Tom. Have any of
0: you guessed, just like Endocrine Disrupting Chemicals EDC, a three-letter acronym, the answer to today's question is a three-letter acronym, and it's DDT. Yes, DDT, that effective insecticide that actually eliminated malaria from 11 countries, including the United States, saving half of a billion lives, was then banned in many countries in the world because it weakened the eggs of a certain bird and because it was thought to have all these potential effects in humans. In fact, um, in India, between 1952 and 1962, the annual number of malaria cases went from 100 million to 60,000. But by the late 70s, when they weren't allowed to use DTT, the number of cases were back up to 6 million. In Sri Lanka, Before the use of DDT, almost 3 million people suffered annually from malaria. When spraying stopped, they were only having 17 cases a year. Not 17,000. 17, down from 2.8 million. Then it went back up to 1.5 million after DDT spraying stopped. I mean, it's just insane. Never has a chemical saved so many lives And then...
1: Had such a bad rap at the same time. Oh,
0: it's just horrible. You know, Rachel Carson wrote that book, Silent Spring, that uh, came out. And she was actually a children's author in the 40s and 50s, got interested in environmental concerns, and then showed these drawings and pictures and wrote this story and got everybody scared, and it led to bad policy. In fact, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, has said, and, and I quote... How DDT affects people's health at low environmental doses are unknown.
1: Wow, remarkable.
0: Laboratory animal studies on the liver reproduction uh, show no problems.
1: So malaria is no longer endemic in the United States. It's not. And we don't use DDT. No. So there must be an alternative that's equally effective.
0: Well, I think they wiped it out. And uh, the, the malaria just sta- – the mosquito stayed south, although now we're seeing, you know, the various other mosquito-borne illnesses come up, you know, the various equine encephalitides, you know, or, or mm. you know, West Nile or uh, eastern equine encephalitis. Other Western, mosquito-borne, sure. Yes, are, are, are coming up. And then, of course, we heard a Zika virus. Uh, coming up. And again, DDT could be used to do the the same thing.
1: Well, it's another example, a painful one, that good science and good policy aren't always the same thing.
0: Oh, sadly, no. And, and you have something very helpful for us, something practical regarding the EDCs.
1: Well, and that's, that's not DDT, even though it sounds that way. That's the endocrine disrupting compound. So I think as, as we sort of alluded to, when we talk about this kind of stuff, it could be tempting to just go stick your head in the sand and be afraid of consuming or being exposed to anything. It can get overwhelmed when you think of some of the plastics and some of the other discussions that we've had, and what are we supposed to do? You know, there can be times when it seems like every other day something causes cancer. So what are a couple of takeaways? I think one of them is we all need to be better consumers, right? Consumers of information, of news, of medical information, especially of household products. We need to understand better the things that we buy and use we need to be better at understanding not only the health choices we make, but of the retail and economic choices that we make as well. And just like in all the other areas of health that we've discussed, there are some simple straightforward things, commonsensical things that we can do to better our health and protect our families. When I I think of that, I think of, eating a little less, drinking a little less, and always wearing a seatbelt. That's not flashy, but no. that could save lives.
0: Well, in fact, that wearing a seatbelt just saved one of my nurse's lives. Who <laughs> hit a slick patch a few weeks ago, rolled over three times, had a, a concussion, but came back to work alive. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gone home again.
1: Right. And I think lastly, natural doesn't necessarily mean healthy, safe, or better. And it's really easy to think that because something is natural, It must be okay. And I think we've seen that's just not the case. Well,
0: poison ivy is natural. (laughs) Curare poison is natural. I mean, digitalis, which affects the heart. If you have too much, that's natural. And The list goes on. You know, I
1: think about this medical school professor that was a mentor of mine that I really admired at the University of Florida. And he used to say, when talking about research and medical changes, he used to always say, don't be the first... Uh, or the last rat to jump off a sinking ship. <laughs> uh, so sometimes What was he saying about medical students? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you you need to pause and you need to think about it before you jump. And I think that's that's advice we could all use.
0: So, I understand you've got some tips on some practical ways that we can avoid hormone-disrupting chemicals.
1: Oh, yeah. They're straightforward. You'll like this first one. Wash your hands. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Washing your hands is pretty simple. We're exposed to a lot of things merely by touching them, whether that's plastics or other things that we've discussed uh, on this show. Wash your hands and wash them frequently, although, this is uh, counterintuitive, avoid fragrance and antimicrobial or antibacterial soaps because they have some of these things that we want to avoid in them.
0: Right, like, well, but doesn't have triclosan anymore, but some toothpastes do.
1: Right. Dust and vacuum often. Now, I personally don't like that one, <laughs> but, but oh, you even, like dust <laughs> in your surroundings? Right, dust and vacuum <laughs> often because so many of these EDCs and other chemicals get trapped Uh, in dust and hang out on the furniture. We inhale it, we touch it, so dust and vacuum frequently. makes sense. Yeah, here's another good one. Turn up your nose at fragrances. Uh, Avoid fragrances, because so many of the fragrances have some of these chemicals in them.
0: Well, fortunately for me, and it's a a bane of many of my patients, but I have on the top of my pre-op list this one page in large type that Dr. McGovern is so sensitive to fragrance, he can't operate on you if you have any on. Because I just get immediate headaches from it. So it might not be an endocrine disruptor. <laughs> and and I have some patients thank me for that because it bothers them too. But there are people out there, unfortunately, who are sensitive. I think mine started with one of my sons started wearing that foul stuff. Whether it was an axe, <laughs> it's such a strong. <laughs> but the teenagers love it, so...
1: I so just have an old all guy's All of our nose. listeners who have teenage boys know what we're talking about. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, here's a good one. Think twice about plastics. We're surrounded by plastic. And I think what we've learned is that our society's rush to plastic maybe was not the great thing uh, that it was that it was thought to be. But shatterproof plastics... Uh, they have the BPAs that we've been talking about. Some of the more flexible plastics are a problem. But when you can avoid plastics, it really might be a smart health choice to do.
0: That's where they're going to some of these more uh, aluminum water bottles now.
1: Right. Now, this one surprised me. Say no can do to cans. Canned foods can make meal preps a breeze, especially for guys like us who can't cook, maybe. <laughs> yes, but, you know, awesome. a lot of those cans are lined with BPA to keep them from corroding.
0: Yes, that's something I learned in prepping for this show that I did not know before. I just thought, oh, stay away from the soft plastics, but it's even the hard plastics and the cans and how much food is in cans now, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, so those are some practical things that we can do without being the first rat or the last rat to jump off the sinking ship of plastics, but avoid our exposure and be smarter about some of these uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals.
0: Well, Chris, it's that time again to say goodbye to our, our faithful listeners who have been with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio and podcast program of the Catholic Medical Association, and we're brought to you from the generous studios of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G.
1: And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll ask and answer the question, Mamas, should you let your babies grow up to be doctors?
0: Until that special triple play with all three co-hosts, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm
1: Dr. Chris Stroud. signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at com slash doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.